chance to sort of have this business. I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life teaching people that they under, need to understand the specs of a company and the job is related to the success of the company, not necessarily the service or the product that you're making. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Steve Jobs. Great things in business are never done by one person. They're done by a team of people. My guest today, Jack Stack, is a business pioneer and one of the world's best business strategists. He's a founder, president, and CEO of SRC Holdings Corporation, and has been called the top 10 mind in small business by Fortune Magazine, and is also the author of two best-selling books, The Great Game of Business and A Stake in the Outcome. Jack has served as a world judge for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Awards Institute and as an advisor for this group since 1998. He's also written for Inc. Magazine and the New York Times and has addressed thousands of audiences on the topic of open book management. Jack, welcome. It's great to have you on the Elevate podcast. Great to see you, Bob. Great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. So I'm always curious to start a little bit at the beginning. Jack is a child. Did he show a, a penchant for business and entrepreneurship? Was there a lemonade stand or was this what interests you when you were younger? Well, I love starting businesses. I think my first one was watching a turtle hatch down in Salt Creek. Then it's watching these little things go into the creek and say, well, why don't I take them back and sell them for 25 cents a piece? And actually put out, a, instead of a lemonade stand, I had a turtle stand. You sold turtle eggs? Hey, no, I sold turtle baby. Oh, the actual turtles. I was shut down by the government, but other than that, the EPA came in. Yeah, my mother. I was sold government. My first business was shut down by my grandmother, so who found out I was taking the train to buy candy and resell it. So similar experience there. I had eventually, I should have been satisfied with just the turtles. I went after the snakes and everything else like that. So I, was, I had a really entrepreneurial urge and had a very early age. But then by the time I was 19, I had failed at everything I tried. So I had a real good experience in terms of getting failure out of my life early. I wanted to be a priest and save the world. And they told me my vocation was priest. I went to college or went to high school and barely got out with a C. And my dad said I could go to college if I want one that had corporal punishment. So I went to a, a Franciscan school where they just beat you into submission to be able to learn. And that was his requirement. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Now they won't send a kid to a school if they talk unnicely to them. So it's amazing how the tables have turned. Yeah, my dad came from a Jesuit background. So that was some of the finest education they ever had at that time. I failed there, too. I mean, I, it was like the time I was 19, the government didn't want me, the education system didn't want me, and the church didn't want me. So I had no other choice but to go into work. I mean, I saw the only thing I thought was going to save my life was a job. <laughs> So did you go to college? I actually went to college and I got kicked out the last day of the second semester of my freshman year. And I was asked never to come back into the county, let alone come back to college. But I then went to work in, for General Motors, went to work, and then I moved to another facility and I ended up going to night school for 10 years. So I went to college for 10 years because I had promised my mother-in-law that I would get it. Your mother-in-law, not even your parents. No, my mother-in-law. Pretty tenacious in terms of I was going to marry her daughter that I better get a degree. Then you needed a college degree. Yeah. So how did you end up at International Harvester? Well, to be frank with you, I was caught playing poker in the bins with some General Motors employees. And they told me that my vocation wasn't to be a General Motors employee. So my dad was working international, grabbed me by the collar and said, 
come in here, you're going to go to work. And so I was sent to the mail room of a factory that was 26 acres under one roof. This is a classic mailroom to boardroom story. I like it. I'm telling you, in our company, the two most powerful people are the mail person and the plant manager. Because between me and that top job, everything was confidential. Nobody saw anything. It had been a World War II factory, which means that it had nothing but security. And you had to have six different badges to be able to move to one organization. And the mail guy got to go everywhere. I learned more about the company from the mail. So that's how you learned the business. That was your education? Oh, I got to see it all. I mean, think about this. In those days, if you were eventually got promoted by seniority, you you post a job, you get a job. I spent two and a half years in supply chain and never was on the factory floor because I didn't have the pass to be able to go see the assembly. It was crazy. It was insane. I mean, it was a totally locked down, secure organization where you didn't get even to see the end product. If you wanted to see the end product, you left work early and went to the back room and got to see a few of the tractors loaded on the rail cars. I mean, it was crazy. You talk about the industrial society, security, fear of someone getting your products, uh, we were, it was the most intimidating organization you possibly can when you couldn't go to see what it was you were doing every single day. It was sad. So how old were you at this point when you worked yourself into the GM role at the SRC division at International Harvester? What did it do, that division? Well, I went to work in, at 19, and I spent from 19 till I was time was 30 in Melrose Park, Illinois, building engines and tractors. I had 10 jobs in 10 years, and then they finally said, look, we want you to take this plant manager's job down in Springfield, Missouri. And we're having a lot of problems with the factory. They said, we want you to either close it or they want you to turn it around. So I flew down in Missouri and took a look at it, and I thought, my God, this is a jewel. This is a lifetime opportunity. So I came down. I didn't even know there was a Missouri state to be telling that honest to God. Okay, I mean, I just grew up on the streets of Chicago. I come down here. This is a tremendously entrepreneurial community. It was not like working with the UAW or working with the, one of the toughest unions in the country. All of a sudden, I came down here. People said, give me the, do the job and get the hell out of my way. And I was like, are you kidding me? You mean there is people here that in our society, okay, that really want to get something done? And it, it was, I fell in love with them. I fell in love with the people. And there was no way we we're going to shut it down. And then all of a sudden we went at it and we applied a lot of manufacturing principles to it. And they engaged, they got fired up. And man, we were knocking down corporate awards like you couldn't believe from 78 to 81. There wasn't anything that we didn't go after to try to beat, show everybody in the and 17 manufacturing plants that we were the best. And we had the time of our lives and said we ran into the biggest depression and recession. You, for International Harvester, 81, 82 was a depression. We went out of layoffs and laid off 1,000 people a week for two years. It's incredible. This company went from 115,000 to 11,000 people. And I was in Springfield, Missouri, running one of their facilities. What was the impetus for that? It was just manufacturing was collapsing, the auto industry, the product was expired. That, I mean, a 90% down, it would seem like that business economy wasn't that bad. Must have been some micro and some macro mixed in. Now, by 1983, interest rates hit 22%. That was the tops. And at the same time, we couldn't compete globally. We were so in in terms of the industrial society principles, that in order to work under that kind of a leadership model, you had to have eight people that did the work of one person. When I went out there to build a crankshaft. Because of requirements and stuff and you, you need like dictation? Yeah. We just kept adding people. We added a forecaster. We had a production controller. 
for the warehouse. You can count it. We had a tool and die guy set up a machine tool before the operator went to work. Then we had a guy who inspected after that. I mean, it's the most insidious amount of overhead you've never seen. Like, and we couldn't absorb it. And then everybody globally, I mean, they just trusted their people and they just smoked us. I mean, when Komatsu came at us, I mean, they didn't, I mean, they just dropped the trailers off in San Diego and drove across the United States. And so we couldn't compete and we couldn't lay off people fast enough. We had $6 billion of debt to 200 banks and interest rates were even eating us alive. So as a. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So the parent company's struggling. You have this jewel that's doing well. And so you and some of your managers get this idea to, they probably essentially need some money to, to buy it out and do it without any of your own money. <laughs> so I love, a little bit of your own money, but a lot of, I think it was, I read it was 100,000 in cash and 9 million in debt. Is that right? To, to the penny. <laughs> yeah. All right. So tell us how that came about and what led you to, kind of buy out SRC. Okay, so we're closing factories all over the world and the news is we're the, we're the front cover of every newspaper, magazine and uh, television about one factory after another. My people would see it in the papers and they would come up to me and say, should I get married? Should I get a car? Am I going to have a job? Where am I going to go? Unemployment was 12% at that time. So when we shut down factories, it was pretty damn cold. So I'm the plant manager figuring I'm just one phone call away from shutting down this factory. And we're not the part of the core businesses. And what they started to chop off was anything, anything that they could get cash for. And so I read in the newspaper that they ultimately put us up for sale. My, my boss didn't even tell me I was up for sale. I saw a tombstone in the Wall Street Journal that said that the remanufacturing centers are for sale. Anybody has any bidders? 
And uh, so I finally went into my people and had a meeting with them and said, don't get married. Don't buy a car. <laughs> okay, we're going through a really bad economic period of time. And I said, well, one of three things are going to happen to us. They're going to shut us down. They're going to sell us to somebody else. Or if we do survive, a dining cabin will be brutal. So I thought I could get this monkey off my back that if I did have to close them, I could show them that I tried something. And so I suggested we buy the business. Okay, I did not have the foggiest idea of what it took to run a company. I'm guessing you didn't know what an LBO was at the time. No, I didn't. And I all I knew was how to build an engine. Okay. I was very good at building an engine. That's all I spent 14 years in that company, knowing how to build the best product, okay, which they told me was the engine. I didn't spend one day realizing that the product was the business. That was the biggest transformation of my life because I left that meeting because I thought the employees would say, are you crazy? Buy a business. But they were so afraid they'd have followed anybody. Okay, they'd have followed anybody anywhere just so somebody could give an answer. And I went out to borrow money. And so I took my blueprint of an engine and I took my holistic wanting to save the world 300 job mindset and went to the bank <laughs> the bank could care less okay they could care less about how great an engine well also the rates were 20 percent, so it couldn't have been cheap capital yeah oh they didn't want that they did not want you to borrow okay there's no question what those rates were and so I went to my I went to 50 people in two years to try to borrow money and it was turned down every time but one I learned so much by having to write business plans. And I began to realize that after the 10th business plan and the 10th denial, I realized this is not hard. And, and I couldn't figure out why this company that I worked for 14 years never showed me the statistics that they look at when they evaluated how strong a business really was. I mean, I busted my ass making engines and tractors. And I really thought that it was all about making the product. It's all my accountability is related to. And here I go out to try to borrow capital. There's a whole new set of specifications that's designed around the success of a business. Okay, so I've been in manufacturing all my life. I did all kinds of programs. And I began to realize that if you want to increase productivity, you got to take the constraints out of the process. And then I thought, well, why are we not showing these people debt to equity ratios? Or why don't we tell them margins? And why don't we tell them the cost of goods? And why can't we explain to them receivables and payable offsets on balance sheet turnovers, right? I mean, it just amazed me that here we were totally out of money, all right? And I'm looking at a whole new blueprint on how to build a business. And I, after the 10th time, I said, my God, if I ever get the chance to have this business, I, I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life teaching people that they under, need to understand the spec of a company and the job is related to the success of the company, not necessarily the service or the product that you're making. Okay. That the product is the company. So I began to really understand how to, to, to run a company. I mean, the, uh, I tell young entrepreneurs, I said, if you really want to learn business, it's not in the MBA. It's a go try to upgrade yourself a money. And when you get kicked out, Okay, then just modify your business plan. Okay, try to figure out what they're teaching you. Okay, don't be totally discerned because, you know, the answers are there somewhere. So we got the business in by default. We got into a bank that was closing down their LBOs. We got into a bank that had fired their president. We got a bank that got in, that fired their chairman of the board. They were total chaos. And we went to them and said, Hey, I hear you're booking bad loans. Would you like to look at this one? It's a doozy. And for some, it was your divine intervention. We got on the 
lending committee. We were able to negotiate the loan on a leveraged buyout deal. And then all of a sudden, on February 1st, 1983, we had a business to run, and we had mouths to feed. Probably no working capital, too, right? And Our, no, no, we didn't. We had $8.9 One of the million was in a receivable that we could at least pay out over a long period of time. There was some little bit of self-financing, but not a lot. We had nothing. But our back was up against the wall. We could not make a $50,000 mistake. We made a $50,000 mistake. And did you personally guarantee the loan or was it just corporate guarantee? Guaranteed, we guaranteed to stay around. Okay. We guaranteed that we would stay around to recover whatever wasn't going to be recoverable. But we, we all, all 13 of the leadership team we had to sign out. I got us all. So, so you buy this business, the economy's still terrible. You've got no working capital. You got huge debt. And now all these people looking to you to save their jobs and allow them to get married otherwise. And, and so you're like, all right, I got to do something different here. Right. Well, I also had a bank at, to, at the closing that didn't send me their lending officer. Okay. Because they had fired them for booking bad luck. And then they tried to negotiate out of the deal. Okay. This is how bad it was when I had 17 people in a lawyer's office waiting to sign close the deal. All right. So they were pretty angry at us. And so we became kind of like on their spotlight. Okay. They didn't really want it. Once they found out. You, so you started in the workout group as it's called, right? Yes, it did. Yeah. Special loans. So for those listening, we had Brad Peterson on recently talked about, yeah, you don't want to be in the workout group or special loans. This is kind of like timeout for people that borrow money, right? Well, there's a guy that they keep in a bank in a dark cellar. Okay. And they only give water and bread to, and they let them out when you're defaulting on a covenant, all right? And it's not pleasant. So what we had to do is we had to figure out that the only way we could survive was to be able to uh, at least forecast what was going to happen. We understood that banks will put up with a lot of things. They'll put up with uh, plans that go awry, but they will never accept the fact that if you miss your forecast, if you miss your forecast, it's it's a sign of really having a weak leadership team and they panic right away, and then they start restricting the money that you, you can get to. So what we had to do was figure out how to come up with a system by which we can accurately forecast what our financials were going to be. And we came to the conclusion that what if we just sat down and took out an income statement, balance sheet, and a cash flow statement, and we filled it out as part of our staff meeting. And uh, I thought there would probably be no better way than taking the income statement and then designating that Bob was in charge of sales. The people on the front line are the ones that need to help you fix this stuff, right? But they don't even know the language or what it is. Yeah. So you go into a meeting on the first day back from work, okay? And you see just a blackboard and an income statement and a name next to the income statement. Bob was sales. Irene was material. Joe was labor. Okay. It was like, and by the time we got done with that income statement, we said, holy shit, there's someone responsible for every line of this income statement and i'm sitting there going why are we doing these 360 reviews and why are we doing all this analysis in terms of whether someone needs an ipd or an improvement program i said it's right in front of us for god's sake this is what we're supposed to do bob is supposed to sell a million five a month okay but if you look what the industrial society had done to bob we said bob you need 11 calls a day seven of them are old four of them are new you got to run the dvd x amount of time it had nothing to do with the top line of the sales line of the income statement. So all of a sudden, when we got down this thing, we all looked at ourselves and said, oh, my God, if we go out and do this for each other, 
we got something really special here, okay? And why don't we get together on a weekly basis instead of having a staff meeting? Why don't we just sit there and project what we're going to do for a given month? Why don't we just show where we all come together, we can make a difference? And we could probably turn this thing around if, in fact, we can do what we say we can do. And it was incredible to be able to realize that the income statements and the financials were nothing more than the stories and the activities of the people in the organization. Okay, It was like they were afraid of the numbers, but they didn't realize that numbers were their stories. And so when we created this psychic ownership between what their responsibility was and how they fit into the income statement, all of a sudden you got teamwork. All of a sudden you had a game. Okay, All of a sudden what you were looking for in the 14 years that I've been with this OEM was what was the connection? What was missing? in terms of me making this great product, but Wall Street tearing this business down. And when we were able to connect the two, it became one of the most powerful things that we had ever witnessed in our entire lives. Because what happened is that we appealed to people's level of intelligence that most people weren't appealing to. They didn't believe people can understand that. They didn't believe people, oh, maybe they're right, okay, considering everything going on today in terms of the debt world, okay? But nobody was really training people in terms of being able to determine how, how do the haves get it and how the have-nots not get it, okay? Well, it became very obvious to us is that the have-nots know how to play the game and the haves don't have the foggiest idea how to play. So we figured that if we could differentiate a company by creating really smart business people, even though we were making engines and even though we were making uh, tractors, I think we would get a better tractor. I think we would get a better engine, okay? I mean, it was like, why didn't we think of this in the first place? I mean, if we gave them the financial information, would they do less than what they needed to do? No, they'll do more than what you ever asked them to do, okay? Because you weren't asking them to do enough in the first place because you thought they were dumb and you thought they were stupid. So we began to run this really smart company. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Yeah, you use the term game, right? And eventually you'd call this open book management system the great game of business, which you've taught to a lot of other companies. I think it's an interesting analogy, right? I heard someone say once, like, none of us would go to a basketball game or a football game if we didn't know the score, what the rules were. Is it the first quarter, halftime? Just people were just throwing a ball around around the field. And we hear the term gamification a lot, but people need to know the rules. They need to know what winning is. They need to know when the quarter's over, right? I think that was part of the, I think the term game was kind of, interesting out of here because I think there are a lot of people who don't understand what game they're playing in there. Okay, so I come back from the banks and I'm really a hot shot. I got all this really excitement. I thought I found something new, right? I'm going to just like a kid in a candy store, I'm going to roll this out to like a couple hundred people to tell them everything about ratios and how you compare to competitive data. And they look at me like I'm out of my mind. They said, that's your job. It ain't my job. And for about four months, it was kind of disappointing from the standpoint that I thought they were just too lazy to learn. Until one day I began to realize is that they didn't have any confidence that they could learn it. They were so afraid of it. They're so afraid of bankers. They were so afraid of checkbooks. They were afraid of some of them that we had to do fifth grade compounded math in order for them to be able to do percentages. But once we realized it was fear, we then used the concept of a game. Well, it's fear. It's also context. It's interesting you say that. I'm involved with an organization called Build and Build adds a entrepreneurial curriculum to a high school and the kids in this high school do remarkably better than kids in the same curriculum. And what happens is they have context for their education. When they're writing marketing copy, they understand English. And when they're studying in math, they understand, oh, this is why I need to understand statistic. Here's the context. So it also, it gives context for this learning that they probably never had before. Listen, we did a test run 30 years ago at Chick-fil-A and they were going to run it according to the FDA rules, okay? And then the other one was going to compare what happens if we taught them the business? What if we taught them ticket sales and how to talk up at ticket sales, okay? And what if we, how about sales and marketing, okay? What if we told them how the business made money? Well, which one do you think really produced, okay? And why do you think their retention of the youngsters were there? Because someone once called one of the parents and they said, well, well, why does your son work there? He said, because we're learning the business, okay? Because he's learning the business. He likes the business. It was amazing that once you begin to teach people the scorecards, okay, that's when the innovation really occurred, all right? All of a sudden, one kid takes, takes a, a Chick-fil-A and walks out into a mall and actually goes out there and gives it as a free sample, okay? Had the idea of knowing how to grow the business, okay, how to build the company. Because he understood what the goal was, right? And he understood what good looked like. Yeah. So so what are the tenets of the great game of business? Like, what are the core sort of tenets? Well, the core sort of tenets is that we do two we do two buy-ins a year. It sounds like Vegas doesn't, but what we do is we go to everybody in the organizations. We give them all the data. We give them the financial plans for the next five years. We tell them everything that we need to know in order to be able to be successful. We've got to convince them and we've got to show them that we've gone out there and done our homework and do our work. We give them the financial plans and then they review them and then we have a meeting and then they, they vote on whether this is crazy. Okay. But when you get hourly salary, people actually having a debate in terms of whether or not we could meet these things or not, it's powerful. Okay. And, it, and we, so we go out there and we get the buy-in from the people. We then go out there and we put a, a plan together based on the tools they need in order to be able to execute the plan. All plans come from the ground floor up, okay? No financial plans come from the top down. They all come from the bottom up. It's their plan, not my plan, okay? When they own it, they do better than anything that I could do and ever to guide them in terms of the direction. But the interesting thing is the high involvement planning. The first, there's only eight steps in the high involvement planning, but the first two are the most important. That is the macro, reading the macro economy, 
and then creating the microeconomy. 55% of what we see right now comes into the macro on a business that you're going to go into, right? And the balance is the other 45%. So we look at the macro side, we look at the micro side, and then we put this plan together with the input of everybody inside our organization. We then set the plan in motion and we back it up by frequent our, our staff monies are no different than they were 40 years ago. We go in with a blank income statement or balance sheet or blank cash flow statement. They put it together in terms of their staff meetings. They then cover anything of material significant value. And they've been on a 30, they've been on a 40 year run of which they've had earnings of 39 out of 40 years. And I realized this system was that powerful. I'd have paid off the loss that we had in our first year, but no man, I had no idea that it was going to be this simple. You probably were the one loan that paid the bank back during that time, right? We had one kid that realized that inventory was a way to get out of debt. And if he could drop the inventory by $2 million, then we could save 18% interest expense at the time. We put three sixty out of savings. We took one eighty. We put in a bonus pool, and then we were on a roll. Okay, we're Next year, I was walking the shop floor, and we were looking for the next critical number. And the, sure as heck, the janitor came up to me and goes, you talk about cash flow and balance sheet and job security? He said, you're full of it. And I said, what do you mean I'm full of it? He said, look, he said, I looked at your receivables the other day, and 76% of our receivables in the truck market, truck market has a recession every six years. So you're going to lay us off anyways. And he kept walking. I went, holy okay, this guy's absolutely right. So like a giant of industry, I called my staff together. I said, do you know that 76% of our receivables are the truck market? We got to do something about this right now. I learned from the janitor. Okay, next year we diversified into automotive, right? I mean, it was like the more we were able to teach people, the more they taught us, okay? The more they taught us, it was incredible. And they still do to this day. So before, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a few minutes. I'm probably ask you all the, the things that the non-believers in this would ask you, but give us the proof. How big was the organization sort of size-wise revenue when you took it over? And what is it today? And it's all employee held, right? Yeah, it's employee owned and we don't, you know, what we... Not public. Yeah. No, but I'm, no, I'll be more than happy to tell you. We started out our first year at $16 million of sales. And then all of a sudden we were an employee-owned company and we realized that we had to pay a stock price because our stock price was going to the ceiling. We actually, I had a million shares of stock and it was a hundred thousand. So it was 10 cents a share uh, when we first started out the business. Today it's $940 a share from that 10 cents a share price. Okay. So that tells you that the value of the company continually increased year after year. On the top line, we began to realize that we had to figure out a way to become liquid in terms of paying off our shareholders. So we started to make investments in other businesses. Which are employees. So when they wanted to buy a house and they wanted to, right. Yeah, when they wanted to cash out. Yeah. We were probably being evaluated at anywhere between an eight and 11 times multiple, depending on the season. And so what that means is that you got to figure out other ways of being liquid or you're going to have to sell the company. And if you wanted to, if you were having a good time with all your friends. It's like an internal run on the bank. So we spin it off companies and we spun off 65, 66 companies in the last 40 years by investing in people that understand the game. And then we provide the seed capital and they then buy that business from us. And we use the sale of the company to put on the balance sheet to be able to have the cash to be able to pay the $940 stock price that they have today. And these are all in your ecosystem. So they work with you. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Well, you're getting into my flaws now. Okay. Because my, my 
was were is that we, when we took off, we thought we could do everything. We thought this was applicable to salons and organic spices. And you couldn't believe the businesses that we got into. All right. So tw- 15 of them were like venture capital deals. And that was a tough period of our lives because you, uh, startups are impossible. They were really hard. And we learned our lessons on startups because when the startup didn't work, we had to take people from our other facilities, put them into those facilities to be able to teach them the culture. And we got diluted. And then we took us a, a period of time to get it fixed out. If you were going to take all the deals that we sold in the companies that we have, the companies we brought to Springfield, Missouri, which was even more incredible, was the, was the uh, reciprocation, the domino effect that we had in terms of uh, the system itself. There's probably over $2 billion in in businesses in this community, of which we are now, we have 12 companies and we're doing about 650 million in sales today. But our balance sheet's really powerful because we sold about 12 companies during that particular point of time, period. I want to play the devil's advocate with people who, look, I was terrified initially in our business. I think I went to a presentation you were at, but I was terrified of of, of open book uh, early on. I thought, well, people know this information. A, a, I mean, it requires a lot of education, right? There is an assumption that maybe there's a single owner or group of owners that that the profit just, particularly if you're in anything with inventory, right? Pro- profit and money that goes out the door to investors are very different things. And so it requires education. But I'm sure someone might say, uh, well, of course, you told everyone it was bad. You told everyone how it was doing but it was bad. My business is going great. I'm making millions of dollars a year. Why do I want anyone to know that? So what's the response to that? Hey, it works. I'm not going to tell you to change what works. Let's work. Let's work. But in most of the cases, people are more ashamed in terms of what they're making than what they are for fear of disclosing. Okay. I mean, in the manufacturing world, if you, in the manufacturing, if you make over 5%, okay, that's huge. Right? Just in the, I mean, we're not talking about tech companies in per se, okay, and those that can, can hit the long ball, all right? But I can't tell you the number of companies that just struggle and can't figure, run out of, look, at 600,000 companies start every single year here, right? And what, 10% of them last five years? Because of what? I mean, they all run out of cash. I mean, it's eventually, I mean, it's not even a, Right, but the people don't know why they're running out of cash, right? It's been easy to get up to this particular point in time. So it's going to be interesting to see how, how what's going to happen instead of being able to watch a dollar, you got to watch a penny. Okay, I mean, um, we've been on a we've been on a real terror in terms of low cost, low money, low. Now you get those inventories, and they surely make a difference in terms of the interest expense that people have. But I basically think that people look at this thing as a powerful tool. I think that people, a lot of them just don't even know how to read an income statement. I can't tell you that. I'm shocked that the companies in executive positions that will ask what a PBT is, all right? And you sit there and go, my God, you're supervising like 2,000 people and you're asking me what a PBT is? I mean, it's why it's, a, why it's the best kept secret in the world, I don't know, but it's destructive. It's totally destructive. I wish we had our worker-ready employees from the education system that really would just understand the game, you know, and it'll make such a totally difference in not only their lives at work, but their lives at home, too, because they'll be able to run out. Yeah, I mean, these are the same people borrowing $200,000 for student loans to go make 40000 a year. Don't understand. If you ask anyone, how, how is a... I've always said... Half Americans, I think, lease cars. How is the lease payment determined on a car? No, no one could tell you that it's the depreciation plus interest to try to figure out whether they can afford that or not. I, 
I still think it's crazy that we let people graduate high school, learning all of this stuff in these classes without basic financial literacy. And no, no kid should be allowed to sign a $200,000 college loan without a mandatory personal finance course. I agree with you. They got ripped off. But just think about the people that, that are on the payday loans. It's the saddest thing you could ever see. Payday loans. I mean, I just got, I obviously do not, I pay off credit cards, but I got some marketing and I always know that it's high, but I got a credit card thing the other day. And now with interest rates, I think it it was the, the promotional thing was, or saying 29.9%. I was thinking it's probably cheaper to go to a loan shark. I mean, if, you, if you're not paying that off, you'll never get out from, I remember 10%, but I mean, sorry, like 20%, but 30, I mean, 30%, it's crazy. I, I read the same thing you did. I, if I went to the shop, I got 9%. If I used the credit card outside the shop, it was 20. If I had a cash advance, it was 29%. Are you kidding me? I don't think we know compounded interest. I think it's probably one of the most misunderstood. Unfortunately, we know the negative side of it, but not the positive side of it. Well, I do know the positive side because I do see that once they understand how the financials of a company works, they begin to take it home. I do see them take it home. And then we have family-friendly financial programs for them so they understand entirely what they need to do in order to be able to survive. And then we also have all kinds of backups in terms of credit unions and things of this nature that we can work with the credit unions on to be able to get them out of these high-risk situations and get them back into a program. Nothing's cooler than giving a kid or associate a balance sheet at the end of the year where they have their 401k and then they have their stock in it. And we say to them, go fill out the rest now. Go fill out your cash. Go fill out your building go or your uh, house. And then uh, minus your debts to then come in and say, oh, before I started this program, I had nine debts. I'm down to four. It's like, oh, God, thank you. It's working. So when you rolled this out, what were the concerns or what did you not anticipate by? And were people on your team pushing back around? We can't show them all this stuff. Like what was less than or worse than expected? My first thought, oh, shit, was this thing is going to work. And if it really works, I'm going to owe a lot of people on more than $9 million. Okay. I mean, when you go from, so we lost 55000 in our first year of the 100. So we're down to like 45000 right on book. And we make a million dollars the second year. All right. We get, they give us a six times multiple. All of a sudden I look at that thing. I go, oh my God, I owe $6 million. All right. Cause you only had a hundred thousand equity your first year and you lost. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When you are leveraged, you can't understand that. They begin to see how the leverage is amazing or it crushes you, right? One of the two. Hey, it's how private equity does it. They don't want to use their money. They could, they figure out how to use everybody else's money and they're out before anybody else is. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, since you launched the game, well, I'll make one statement and one question. So since you launched the game, I'm curious what's changed in terms of in the marketplace that sort of had you adapted the great game of business. One thing that I think has blown in your favor is with technology and all these dark web websites and everything, it generally seems like information wants to be free these days. And the notion that you could contain information is much less of a reality, which makes it maybe easier to go with something like this. But what has stayed the same and what has sort of changed over time? Well, I remember 
someone asking us to put this in a book and I told her, I said, lady, I can't write a sentence, let write a book. Okay. He goes, Oh no, no. She said, this is really kind of, we love to have it as if you're sitting across the table talking to somebody. And so like three editions later, we finally got to what she wanted. She wanted a common sense approach in terms of what this really meant to the terms of people's lives. And then that led to like book tours and everything like that. So I ended up in Bellwood, Illinois and off Bellwood, Illinois, but it's like the school machine capital of the world. Okay. All the owners in there with their T-shirts on and their shirts are rolled up. Sick, their cigarettes are in there, and you know their, their thought leadership is uh, let them strike. We drink beer with them every night, but it's just an annual thing. They'll just strike, and then we'll just take them. But for now, I go there and try to talk about open book management. They're going to kill me. Okay, they're just going to kill me. I mean, I could. I said, "Oh my God, why did I send the taxi cab?" Okay, this is ridiculous. I'm telling these guys. Okay, <laughs> that have a confrontational discussion with their people every year in terms of what the business is going to look like going forward. And that has definitely changed. Okay, <laughs> that has definitely changed. All right, people were beginning to realize that uh, there's something to be said about everybody going after the same target, everybody going after the same. Now, I also think this changes. A lot of people didn't believe in planning. Okay, and this is another thing that was very difficult is that you, we do a really good job of planning out where we're going to be. Whereas most of the people said, there's no reason to plan stupid. Okay, these they're all breakable. Okay, you can't make a plan. You can't. Well, well they don't understand is that you're not going to get there without a plan. And if you got a contingency, it's even smarter to be able to get to where it is. So the whole planning process, I think people are beginning to think a little bit longer than they definitely had in the past. Okay. I do think that some odd stuff is at this point of, Look, okay, I, I was embarrassed my entire life, okay, by, by people coming together and classifying it like open books or the great game of business. Although we did use the great game of business as a tool to teach people that they had the confidence to be able to learn it. But one time I was out at giving a speech and this kid in the class said, how are you guys so smart to use gamification back in the 80s? All right. And I go, oh, my God, we're vindicated. All right. We're vindicated. All right. All these years of of, uh, people would sit there and say it, business is not a game. Business is serious, okay? Right. You're not serious enough. Yeah, I'm not serious enough, and then you're, you're blowing it off, and it's much more important to me. And my families are totally dedicated to it and tied to it. And I know they, all, they probably don't even tell your families what it is or or how it works. And so I just think that there is really this openness in terms of really understanding that it's a way to drive a culture, okay? It's a, re- it's a really interesting way to create a 100-year-old company, all right? The sustainability, I think, is always based on the innovation. I think they can innovate because they know the rails by which they innovate on, all right? Because they understand how things work and the mechanisms of it. So I believe that we're seeing much more in terms of productivity improvements, which we need drastically. But I, I, we're still slow on the education side, okay? It's horrible to see what kind of financial literacy we're still getting today. That hasn't changed. It's as bad now as it's ever been. And it's just, and we don't understand the power of it. Okay. And as a result of not understanding it, we get what we got today. Okay. We got a lot of messes today. Yeah. It's interesting. So in some ways it almost seems like it's, if you launch this today, people would be like, this is perfect. People love gamification and we've got the dashboards and the technology. Like they wouldn't believe that this is, the system is as many years old as it is now, right? Or over 40 years now. Well, I don't think people realize that maybe some of their turnover is also boredom. 
Okay. I think really smart people get bored real fast. Yeah, I was going to say people, they want to feel part of the process, some control. Like, I think also during tough times, the best thing that you can give people is some concept of control or ownership over the situation or saying, look, here are the numbers. And if they get worse, you we're going to have to do, but we're all looking at the same numbers. We're making the same decisions. That feels a lot better than sitting there waiting for the other shoe to drop. The power is that when you need the help, they know exactly what to do and they know who to cover. And they don't, you take, when you give them the opportunity to set their targets, they do not shoot at other people because they know when they miss a target, it's great if somebody else could help them out, pick them up, bring them to the party. But yes, they all want the whatever generation you want. They want to make a difference, right? They all want even the boomers want to make a difference. Well, I know you said like, how do you greater think about the role that business can play in education? I read your statement that said our real business is education. I think listening to you today, that becomes a little more apparent. But it's not. It just seems like there's benefits beyond the business itself, right? and for the people and for humanity and educated in the types of things that we need to know as we go through our life. Look, I think what we're most proud of is that we bought our jobs. 40 years ago, we bought our jobs and we anchored our job security primarily based on knowing the rules of the game, right? By teaching everybody what markets that they were in, who the competition is, we would show them what standards were established in terms of the marketplace. So we'd never be asking them to do more than what the marketplace is. But if they did mar- better than the marketplace. They deserve better than the marketplace. And so we also then brought in the whole concept of equity. And equity to us has been a, the most incredible thing you've ever could imagine. We have generated at least now $160 million of equity that has left the company because we're in our third generation of employees. And that is going through our community at a three to four times rate. Okay. It's amazing to see the people cash out here they get paid out of a five-year period of time. They don't stop. They go back and they invest it. They're starting landscaping companies. They're st- they're starting. I've seen people buy trailer parks. And I mean, once this is when they leave or when they're still employed too, or both. Yeah. And they retire. When they retire. Got it. Okay. I have one guy tell me that he's now running like a Dave Ramsey course for his churches. This guy had more of those subpoenas than anybody I'd ever seen in my entire life. Okay. And every time the sheriff would come here, I know I was gonna, they're gonna, I mean, we're gonna have to garnish his wages. And I said, Warren, you're telling people, you know, how to stay out of debt. He goes, what better person? He goes, what better? Person? I go, God bless you. And he did that. He played all of the principles. He and his wife went out to dinner the night before. They laid their plans out. Okay, they played, like had their scorecards. It was, it's fun. Okay, it's crazy. So, so, so how do new employees buy in? Well, we first of all have repetition, but the idea is not to have the repetition be boring and not to be to be as exciting as you possibly can. So it's in the rhythm, all right? It's the fact that we do the two times we lay out the plans or they lay out the plans. And it's a total program that's based on quarterly bonus programs and bonus programs drives the stock prices, okay? So there's a lot of movement going on in terms of their heads. Um, like, I think they, if our year is going to end here in December, and I can tell you right now, they got it forecasted to the dollar what's going to happen because they know what the impact's going to be on their stock price. So, morale has been really good. Retention is really good. Getting through the pandemic was just using the same kind of principles. That was hard because the principles are simply know the rules, have a scorecard, and have a stake in the outcome. 
when you think about the problem that we have with the pandemic, I can't tell you the Friday nights we stayed around here because the government made a rule change and we had to figure out how to tell them the truth by Monday morning. Okay. But we just followed the same pattern and it got us through it. And, and we've built a pretty healthy education process that not only gives to the people that are working here, but also gives back to the community. We've got a hundred people in, in the Springfield community on boards, on education committees and we try to do most we post we can like right now we got a day of caring at the united way and we'll bring in 10 not-for-profits and teach them the disciplines of the game so and there's been a lot of success factors in the not-for-profits once they began to realize that a, a margin and a mission can go hand in hand so you think about when you put a business together if why not tie everybody into where you want to go and then why wouldn't you listen to everybody in terms of where they want to go and see if you can meet somewhere in between? So, yeah, we've got about a $250 million equity position right now, minus the 165 went, went back in the community. Okay. So it's a, I mean, it's a really capital. There's a bright side of capitalism. Okay. I mean, there's truly a bright side of capitalism. Yeah. And that segues to what I was going to ask you, which I, I, I think that, a lot of times employees don't appreciate the decisions that managers have to make or otherwise that are just not, that are hard and focus on not self-optimization, but what's best for the team or the company. For example, I can recently, we had a lot of people that were upset that we kind of modified our, our policy about where people could work, kind of our jet setter policy. Well, that turns out because the government has not kept up with people's desire to work from anywhere. And it was creating a legal and administrative mess that we just couldn't manage. It wasn't that we wanted to tell people what they couldn't do. It's just, we can't, can't have people working from anywhere and not know where they're working. It's just not, <laughs> there's implications to that, right? You can't just work from France without having entity in France or otherwise. So I, I assume that being a hundred percent employee owned company, changes these sort of decision-making and some of the culture around things like this and kind of helps people not feel like it's us versus them, but that, hey, here's the facts. And like in that example, I said, okay, here's all the data. If you have an idea for a better policy, we'd love to, we'd love to hear it. Everyone has a playbook. Okay. Every year, the playbook is designed by a series of events that ultimately accumulates and everybody knows where they fit. Everybody knows what could happen. Everybody knows the opportunities. Everybody knows the careers that are going to be required as a result of the success of the organizations. Okay. And they know where they make a difference. Okay. And the idea is to be able to, to get them to have a little bit of fun and to be able to be very pride in what they do. And we do a lot of, there's another phrase we use and it was to be able to eliminate the differences between a happy ending and a confrontational ending. And that was the fact is that when we have a problem, we play a mini game, right? We know exactly what formula you can use from a balance sheet or cash flow statement to be able to drive a self-funding problem that you have and to be able to fix it and have the courage to be able to do it. So there's a lot of, we were trying to make this like Vegas. Like they were trying to make it that you really want to come in and see what you did the prior day, see what shipments were out, okay, see what receipts came in, okay, it's a whole, it's a language, okay, that you begin to really enjoy, you begin to take a little bit of pride saying, why isn't business a sport, why isn't it cool, okay, I mean, why, why aren't we talking more about the positive aspects of the business, okay, instead of all the 
things that we need to fit around whatever generation is coming along. Because I was at a diocese the other day, and the millennial gets out there and said, we will save the world. And I followed them. And I had no other choice but to sit there and say, well, as soon as you grow up, you'll be able to control the world. <laughs> okay. You say it was going to save the world or control the world? Save the world, I'm sorry. Yeah, save the world. Got it. Yeah. So you've got a lot going on, running a business, father, grandfather, like how do you balance the needs of leading a major corporation with family life and how do your family values also influence your approach to business? Okay. So I I wrote in the 1990s that I wanted everybody to have a 40 hour work week. Okay. Only from the standpoint of being able to have some times with their families and their kids and everything growing up and then we had the pandemic. We were working 60, 70 hours dragging, and they would take a picture of the book I wrote saying, let me say, what are you doing to my family? You know, like, this mandatory overtime on Monday is killing me. Okay. So I guess my conclusion is don't write a business book, okay, because it haunts you for the rest of your life. But uh, a lot of business books don't age well. <laughs> we have people that underline it and say, well, I thought you said this in 1990. I go, well, change things change in 33 years. Things of this nature. You gotta focus on the change. But we've been very our largest shareholder inside our company is the guy who started in nineteen eighty three making four dollars and forty five cents an hour. He's making eighteen dollars an hour now and he's got three hundred three got three million in stock, right? So the stock price went up twenty percent last year. This guy's making fifty grand on his salary and he picks up six hundred thousand on a twenty percent gain of three million. Isn't America a great country? Guy's seventy five years old, I'm going down there. Steve, why are you working? He said, for my kids. I mean, it's crazy. When he says his kids, is that to model behavior or is that to... He doesn't want to retire. He wants to keep working. I said, at least diversify your assets. He goes, we are diversified. Our company's worse, but we got 12 companies. I go, oh, okay. I mean, he is, he's got it figured out. He's going to leave it for his children. Good for him. Good people. All right. Well, Jack, last question for you. And this is can be multivariant. So it can be singular, repeated, personal, and professional. But what's a mistake that you've made that you've learned the most from? I believed in the system so strongly. I started to create more companies than which we can handle. And we made some really stupid deals. We actually got into a salon. All right. For someone gave us a business plan. So it'd be a really good idea to create a salon just for the daughters of the mothers that go to the salons that bring their daughters. We could differentiate this terms of marketplace, okay? We could take this thing to the moon. And then we got into bringing in 17 Magazine, wanted to invest in it. It became a really good idea. It was a horrible idea, all right? I mean, we knew nothing about the salon business. We knew nothing about the daughters in terms of, and it was crazy. I mean, it was one of the biggest lessons that we ever learned in our lives that we got ahead of our skis. And then we looked at it and we had 12 more companies in this portfolio. And we began to realize that startups, it's really nice to be able to be kind to your society, your community, to be able to invest in people that have their dreams. But probably about nine out of 10 of them really are just dreams. And then we had to clean up that mess for a couple of years. And then we finally decided if we're going to joint venture, if we're going to invest in anything, we'll joint venture. And we'll joint venture with the people that have the ongoing concerns. And that was a big difference in terms of our lives. Okay. But we cleaned it up. We made a mistake and we learned a lot. We're just not in the salon business. Yeah. So evolve, but stay, <laughs> but focus. That's what I take from that. Absolutely. Yeah. Focus on what your strengths really are. 
All right, Jack, thank you for joining us. We've known each other a while. We've tried to make this happen. I'm glad we finally got to sit down and have this discussion. It's great to see you, Bob. Thank you. And thanks for everything you do. All right, to our listeners today, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast. We'll include links to Jack and the great game of business on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to follow the show to be notified about new episodes and have them downloaded automatically. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, simply hit follow on the show overview page or the three little dots in the upper right if you're on an individual episode in the app and then hit follow. You can also hit follow on CastBox, Spotify, Pandora, or your favorite podcast player. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.